Okay, good morning everyone. I've been told there's a slight chance of load shedding, but let's see. <clears throat> okay. I'm ready. It's lovely to be here with all of you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew. I'm also one of the elders. I can come pray for you if you're sick. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Father, I thank you for everyone that's here, and I thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your glory. We honor you and praise you. Thank you for your spirit inside of us and in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <clears throat> so, um, month, May is my month to preach, so I'll be preaching this whole month. Uh, so I've got a three-part series for all of you um, about faith. And I apologize in advance for my PowerPoint game. It's very basic. Um, but today, we, so we're going to be speaking about faith um, this month, and we're going to be grounded in Romans. So that's how we're going to do it. We're going to like stick around Romans, and from there we will go to places that we need to go. But I want to look at faith. Um, faith is a, quite a loose term. It's used quite loosely. There are people who don't have any sort of theology who talk about faith. You hear about faith on the TV, faith on the radio. Lots of people have faith. But what is faith? Um, And uh, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to say through the series, you probably will have heard before, but that's okay. Um, Martin Luther apparently once said that we need to beat the gospel into our heads continually. And uh, another, another preacher said that faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. See, the thing of the matter is that uh, humans are very good at being religious, very good at religious activity and a religious mindset, but the gospel is completely other. It's completely other to religion. You can have religious outward forms, very religious, which makes something like the coronation of Prince Charles quite confusing to watch. You're not always sure how to process it, but I won't go into that. But that is to say you can have a cultural Christianity, you can have a cultural Islam and everything. Humans can do religion. Okay? Even secular humanism is religious. It's got creeds, it's got doctrines, it's got a sense of righteousness and evil. And it's got high priests as well, actually. Um, that is all to say, humans can do religion. So the gospel is something totally outside of what we usually do when we think of relating to God. We usually typically think of relating to God in terms of my goodness, my best behavior meets his reward, and therefore I'm okay with him. The gospel pushes that right off the table. All the major religions function like that. Even secular humanism functions like that. But the gospel doesn't function like that. So we're going to speak about faith. <clears throat> um, and what I'm also going to, I believe the Lord has given me and, and really been speaking to me about is to look at what faith is. Um, and typically when we think of faith, we think, think of it in almost like events-based faith. Right. I have this problem to which I apply faith in the hopes that it will change. We have faith when we come to the Lord initially, salvation by faith. 
But often, to all intents and purposes, we kind of handle the rest. The big stuff is when we now we bring faith. But Scripture actually speaks about a daily faith, an hour-by-hour faith. Um, so we're going to take time. It's going to be very relaxed. We're just going to read a lot of Scripture. Scripture is going to preach to you. I'm going to try and highlight a few things. But um, yeah, I think before, before I go into it, I want to pray for us and, and also just trust God to do something. You know, one of the things that can make faith evaporate is an inward gaze. And we actually do that chronically. It's a very easy mistake to make to just turn inward, you know. And sometimes we're even discipled in that way. Whether it's through sermons or counseling sometimes or even the types of songs that we might sing. Our gaze is actually here. We might... We might we might pay homage to some higher themes of God's glory and everything, but actually we like this. And we look to the side and to the side, and we look in and we look there. But God, oh man, it's just what he really wants to do is when we gaze upon his glory and are transfixed by his glory. That has such a liberating, um, cleansing thing. And I trust God for more of that in our worship and in our preaching, and in our congregation, that we can actually just be transfixed on Him. And I trust Him to do that this morning. As we just look at His Word, that that is what happens. We see Him. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm just going to give you, just ask you to take a moment to open your heart to God, to open it to His Word, and just be quiet before Him for a few seconds, to tell Him that you open your heart is open to him to speak to you. Father, would you pin the eyes of our heart and of our soul and of our mind, our whole being, would you pin our eyes to you, to your glory? Would you do that work in us, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, so Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. Um, when I'm reading, you're welcome to read along on the screen or close your eyes and just listen. But um, we're going we're gonna to read through the chapters. As I say, we'll be grounded in Romans, but we're going to start at Romans 3. So... Before we get to Romans 3, Paul gives a highlight, he gives a summary of mankind as it stands. He does a lot of work in describing the depravity of man, which has always been the case, by the way. It's almost, I think now we just get it everywhere, through the radio, through the TV, through everywhere. Everywhere you look, it's just forced onto you. But man's depravity has been around since way before Paul's time. So, Paul builds the case that every human being is sinful, and when man rejects God, there's only one way that he goes. Man only goes one way, and that's down when he rejects God. Man cannot drum up virtue for himself. Man has no virtue apart from God. So he does a long section on that, and he talks about God's righteous judgment on sin, why it is righteous for God to have a judgment on sin. He talks about the law and how, how the law exposes sin, and, and you wouldn't know what sin is apart from a law. Okay, so Paul covers that groundwork. Then he covers the work of 
God's righteousness, and then he does the section on no one is righteous, no, not one. Okay, we're quite familiar with that. No one is righteous, no, not one, apart from God. Okay, then we start in Romans 3, verse 19. Okay, so I'm just going to read slowly. As I say, you can follow along or just meditate on it as we read it slowly. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul is also addressing Jews who have the Mosaic law, who believe that their cultural Judaism, their cultural affiliation to the law made them righteous with God. Paul is saying, no, all of you who like to hold on to the law and say how righteous you are, the law is actually the thing that accuses you and exposes your sin. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So we're going to hear justified a lot. It's actually like legal language that Paul uses here. Justified is a declaration about something. When you are justified, it's a declaration that's made about you. It's not something you work up from inside. It's done externally to you. God does it and declares it about you in the context of Romans. But justified is is a legal term on purpose, I believe. Paul could have used a lot of other words, but he used justified. No one will be justified by the law, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the law and the prophets bear witness to the salvation that God was going to bring about. And next week we'll look at the new covenant. And sometimes it feels like, is Paul the only one who talks about the new covenant and the new creation? It seems almost too good to be true. Did he just make that up? And then you look, no, actually, Peter also says the same thing. John says the same thing. Jesus actually said the same thing. And actually, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them said the same thing. So it's very important to recognize that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, points to the New Testament and the new covenant, the new birth that God would do in his people. And we're going to unpack that in the two weeks to come. But when you read it without faith, it seems too good to be true, and then you don't believe it, and you think it can't be, or you just don't understand it, and you walk away. But we're laying the groundwork for faith today to see the amazing things that God does for his children. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I know we all use propitiation daily as a word and know exactly what it means. <laughs> Just briefly, propitiation is a, it's more than a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to turn away anger. Okay, so Paul's In the previous chapters, he's spoken about sin and God's righteous judgment against sin. So there was a wrath. Romans talks about wrath, the anger of God towards sin. Um, So it's interesting. While there's a lot of legal language about condemnation or justification, there's a lot of emotive language as well, right? Because God's not just a, a high court who sits there sort of blind, indifferent to what's happening and just runs a judicial system. 
He's, he's, he, we are made in his image. He experiences emotions that we experience, and he has righteous anger towards sin. And so the earlier chapters, Paul explains why that is good and, and why it is. But the fact of the matter is Jesus stepped in as a sacrifice, not to merely satisfy a legal condition in the courts of heaven, if you will, but to turn away the wrath of God against sin. In fact, he absorbed that wrath. The wrath of God against sin was spent on his son. Okay, so that's the word propitiation, and that's why it's an important word. He doesn't just say sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to turn away anger. God put him forward as that sacrifice to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I'm just going to say at the outset, you could really unpack Romans for your whole life almost. There's, it's so dense in, in terms of what's being written there, but we're focusing on faith. Okay, So if I don't hang on a particular section, it's not because it's not important. It's just because we're not... It's not what we're focusing on now. But so in that small chapter already, Paul has spoken about faith and those who believe and, and all the rest. And as I said at the start, faith is thrown around quite loosely. <clears throat> um, what is faith? As I said, we also look at faith sometimes as an event that uh, it's something that comes at, at the right time. Okay, But it is a daily position of your heart. So I've got some Greek words for you. I, know, I don't know how many of you enjoy that kind of thing, but uh, I think it's important. I've done my best with my strongest concordance to get an understanding of what these words mean. So the words believe and faith um, have a root word. So I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but on the right, you've basically got a, a little diagram. Um, the word that we get for believe comes from the word for faith, which comes from another word. Okay, so the root word that leads to words like faith and belief is pytho, number 3982 in the Strong's Concordance. And that is a verb. It, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a verb. You guys know what a verb is. And it basically means to convince, persuade, or assure. It's to assent or to agree, to believe, to obey, to make friend, or to yield, to believe, to trust, to rely on, to have confidence. So we see a couple of things there in, those, in that root word, the different things that it denotes. It's not mere belief about something. Um, it's, it goes deeper than that, deeper than believing that something sort of is there or isn't there. Um, what I really, the one that I really like is yield. Um, and it's, it's in the same sense of obey. How it shows up in James 3.3 3, when he's talking about the power of the tongue and taming the tongue. He says, what we do with horses is we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us. And we guide their whole bodies as well. Faith in this sense means a yielding, uh, an assent. It means someone has convinced you or something has, evidence has been given to you. You've become convinced or persuaded by something. Then you can either reject it, or you can actually yield it and say, ah, okay, you yield. Um, it's a yielding to, to something. How it's also shown up is in Paul, Romans 8.38 says, for I am persuaded, I am pytho, 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor present nor things to come can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is persuaded. He doesn't have a mere sort of entertain the possibility of its existence. He's persuaded. Similarly in Philippians, Paul talks about, uses the same word in a different way, saying, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so that root word denotes persuasion, confidence, uh, an assurance to rely on, to trust, and to yield, which then gives us the next word, pistis, which is the word that's often used for faith. And again, as you can imagine, it's similar sort of things, persuasion, assurance, belief, and especially reliance upon Christ for salvation. Examples of this from Matthew 17, 20. He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. And in Romans 3, 22, And this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's the scripture we just read. And it talks about those who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. So when we read faith there, we read it's a, an assurance and a persuasion and a reliance. So faith means a reliance. Faith in Jesus means a reliance on Jesus, not merely believing that he's there or that he's real, or that he's a, a historical figure. It means to, it's kind of to just throw your lot in with him. It's to entrust yourself to him. All your chips are gathered and you give them to him. No no trust, no little investments in any other thing, a little bit of my righteousness, a little bit of my good deeds. You throw everything on him. So this word um, for faith is used in every single book of the New Testament multiple times. Okay, so when the New Testament says faith, it says this, and it's talking about persuasion and an assurance and a belief, which has an object, by the way, right? So the, the way that faith is sometimes used in sort of secular culture is just a, a wish, actually. Um, I have faith in the universe. Like, what is that? It's, but it's actually a wish sort of thing, okay? So, so faith has an object. You're persuaded about something, you have an assurance about something, and you entrust yourself to something or someone. So this is used all throughout the New Testament, but not in John, surprisingly. John uses the next word, which is pisteu. Again, it fleshes it out. It's to have faith in, upon, or with respect to a person or thing. It's to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being to Christ. It is to commit to trust, to put in trust with. So this word appears also in almost every book in the New Testament, but it's in nearly every chapter of John. So John uses the word believe, and he uses faith, but he uses this one. To entrust, to commit to trust, as I explained now. Examples of this were immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, I trust you, help my inability to trust, help my unbelief. And this is one of the cornerstone verses of our faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And there we see a very clear application of the true meaning of the word. Everyone who not everyone who believes that he was around, that he, he died these things, but everyone who believes in, who believes on, who entrusts themselves to him will not perish but have eternal life. 
Paul talks again, and this righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So Paul is saying that having laid the groundwork to say that everyone is wicked and you do have, uh, you've got an account in eternity apart from God and it's in the red. When you entrust yourself to Jesus, that gets wiped out. Okay, God speaks to you about Jesus and says, there's sin, there's wrath for sin, but there's been a propitiation, someone who's absorbed the consequences of that, and he's done it for you. When you say, oh, Lord, I reach out and grab what you've got. I, I reach out and take hold of that. You entrust yourself to that. Sometimes you think about Judgment Day, that how much you must trust Jesus on that day. So how much you must trust him now. Like You entrust your eternal destiny to him, to his love and to his care and to the work that he's done. That's important because where it sometimes unravels in the daily faith is we think it's just for forgiveness for this one time, but then I need to do all the right stuff to have a good standing on Judgment Day. No, the justification has taken place. <clears throat> okay. So those are your Greek words. So I want you to bear all of those in mind as we continue reading through Romans. So Paul, in developing justification by faith, again, I'd encourage you to read the Old Testament because we, we may be used to it. We don't know anything else. But if you had to really sacrifice animals every day just to have your sins washed away for that day, it would be much more real to us. So I do want to encourage you to spend time in the Old Testament. Uh, justification by faith can become passe, as they say, to us. <clears throat> but Paul builds the whole argument for New Testament, the New Testament way of being right with God. Is justification by faith. And the person upon whom he builds that whole argument is Abraham. And we'll see just now, he actually builds it on David as well. So Abraham, you'll hear heard in scripture, was the father of our faith, as Paul also says. But when he's talking about the faith that justifies, he looks at Abraham. He looks at the faith that Abraham had. So we're going to look at that just now. But quickly in Romans 4 verse 1 to 12, what he says then, so at the end of Romans 3, he says there's no way for you to boast. If righteousness was by your performance of the law, then you could say, good old me, look what I did. He says, you will never reach that stage, so there's no boasting. Any, no one can boast because your righteous standing has been given to you. Okay. So then he says, so what about Abram? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15 verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And here he goes into David, saying, David also knew of this. He also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, or the one to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And he quotes from Psalm 32, where David says, Blessed are those 
whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Is this blessing only then for the circumcised or for also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So there's lots of talk about circumcision there, which um, I won't go into the medical details of that, but it was a, I think you guys all know what it is, but it's a, it was um, part of the Old Testament identification as a Jew was that you underwent this medical procedure was what distinguished you from the uncircumcised Philistines, okay? But Paul's basically building the argument here, saying Abraham was declared righteous before this. Before this whole system of Jewish identity existed, you know, circumcision, Abraham was actually already counted righteous with God. And then he shows David, who was born a Jew, who was also circumcised, but David also knows as he prays, yeah, he says, blessed are those against whom the Lord does not count their sin. David could recognize that God has given him a righteousness that's actually independent of his performance. <clears throat> so if he's saying that Abraham is justified by faith, what was Abraham's way of salvation? How, how is it that Abraham was declared righteous before God? What is it that he did? If, if Paul is building the, the crux of the Christian faith, the theology, the crux theology of the Christian faith, which is to be saved by justification, by faith, as seen in Abraham, what was this? Was Abraham... Did he also have some good works? Did he also have some zeal? Was God super impressed by Abraham's sort of desire for godliness or his zeal? Or, or was he quite a good guy? Was there something that Abraham also had that gave him this righteousness? We know already that it wasn't his circumcision. So in the Jewish culture, circumcision was the sign of that. You are right with God because we've cut off this part of you. Paul says, no, Abraham was right with God before he even had that. Also, just to say that that's nothing, it's not relevant today, right? None of us have to have that procedure. <clears throat> but Abraham actually had nothing before his salvation. Abraham was declared justified, right with God forever, without anything. Abraham had nothing. He was a pagan from a pagan land, actually. He was not particularly godly, he was not even Jewish. It doesn't look like what we think he typically looks like. We see the later part of Abraham, right? But he didn't look like that when God came to him at first. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. 
So this is the point at which Abraham responds to God in a certain way that has God declare him as righteous. So at this point he's actually still called Abram. So Abram, Abraham's name gets changed after the covenant he makes with God. But he's still called Abram. So Abram actually gets justified by faith. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, this is God. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said to God, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to. Then he said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. So God there is making the promise about, Abraham's probably not even aware of it, but God's already there communicating his plan for history going forward. So Abraham didn't have physical children as many as the stars. That would be quite a job. Um, but his descendants, innumerable actually, to us. We can't count that high. So God here is already speaking about what he says they're going to be I'm going to have lots of children and you are going to be their forefather, Abraham, their, their father according to faith. So God is saying there's going to be a way of salvation. I'm going to reconcile lots of people to myself and it's going to be through you, Abraham. How, how is that? How does he do it through Abraham? What is so special about Abraham that God does it through him? Well, what's so special about it is the way that Abraham responds to God. Abraham doesn't even necessarily understand this multitude of stars worth of children, but God says, I'm going to give you a son. You will have an heir. That's your own son. And what's more, you don't fully understand it, Abraham, but as many as the stars are, those will also be your offspring. So what does Abraham do? Analyzes, argues with God, says, oh, Lord, that's great, but I really don't have what it takes. Or all the other things that we usually do. Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So this is that last verse, 15 verse 6, is the verse that Paul quotes when he's building New Testament theology on salvation. He says, this is how we know that this is the way to be right with God. Not by religious behavior. Not by lots of ceremonies and rituals. Not by a spotless record of obedience and, and following him and doing everything right. By believing the Lord. And as we saw earlier, 
by trusting the Lord. So what we see here in Abram is actually very simple. It's very, very simple. God says something, Abraham takes him at his word. He says, okay, Lord. I've just laid my case and said, I don't have children. You've said I'm going to have an heir. I believe you. And that, that is the thing that God is looking for in man. He's looking for that response of faith that takes God at his word. Simply agrees to him, yields to him and says, okay, Lord. Let it be so to your servant. That was all that Abraham did. He believed God. For us, salvation comes by believing God when he speaks to us about Jesus. As I said, God speaks about sin, the problem that we have, the distance that from him, the wrath that is actually directed towards us because of sin. Then he says, here's Jesus. He has the answer to that. When we believe that and trust in that, justification happens. You come out from that position with the wrath pointing at you into a new position, justified with God, set right with him forever. Believe on the Lord Jesus and trust yourself to him like Abraham did and you will be reckoned righteous because you trust God's promises. You have to just trust God. You have to trust Him. That's what He's looking for. Just take me at my word. When I say, this is the way in which you'll be forgiven and have your sins washed away, you say, yes, Lord. Thank you. I trust in that. And it's done. Also just brought in for, just for some learnedness, the Hebrew word that's there when... when uh, when Abraham believes the Lord. And that's the word aman. And again, to belabor it, it's to trust <laughs> and to have an assurance. Okay. Abraham believed the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He had assurance of God's faithfulness to his word, to his own promise. And the Lord then counted that to Abraham as righteousness. Okay. We're getting, nearing towards the end now, but um, we're going to go back to Romans 4, where Paul actually fleshes this faith out a little bit. And we'll see, Scripture actually points to how this same faith was in operation in Abram's life later on. Even with the story of Abram and Isaac, you know, we might be tempted to look at the extreme toughness of that it says Abraham was tested what was tested it wasn't his commitment and how much he will do for the Lord it says his faith was tested okay and scripture itself explains that event and said Abraham knew this is the seed this God said that this is my heir so even if he should die now God will surely resurrect him because how else will Will he be my heir? That's what scripture says. Scripture explains that whole process. Abraham reckoned God was able even to raise him from the raise Isaac from the dead, which figure, literally, figuratively, he also did. Okay. So that was just a side story, but but scripture basically points to this same faith being persistent in Abraham's life. And we see it in Romans 3, 
as well. So Paul is expanding upon that transaction between God and Abram. So just finishing at verse 12, and to make him, that's Abram, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. We walk in the footsteps of faith that Abraham had, and we just looked at that, the nature of that faith. That's the faith that we exercise and become justified. So Paul explains it from verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no wrath, law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abram's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, that's Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, God, the Father, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, Paul pretty much spells it out. There's not too much I can add to it. That's the nature of Abram's faith. When he looked at his body, said he and Sarah hadn't had children for a hundred years. Well, okay, I don't know when they started trying, but he was almost a hundred. So say uh, 80 years of trying to have children, nothing happened. And now God says to him, you're going to be the father of many nations. That's reason for doubt. That's reason for skepticism. But Abraham says, okay, Lord. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father as he had been told, God had said to him, you'll be the father. He said, okay. No unbelief made him waver or be skeptical about that promise. But he was fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. It's actually very simple. Faith is not an intellectual thing. It can be, if you try and define it too much, you might start spinning. But it's, it's a response. As we prayed in intercession... Faith, this is not going to undo everything I've just said, but 
faith doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Faith in Jesus saves you. Okay? Faith in your own faith is going to really disappoint you. It's going to frustrate you and have you depressed because that will never be anything. As I said earlier, like one way for faith to be quenched and evaporated is to look inward and say, okay, what am I going to bring? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Even the man who cries out to Jesus says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is a cry of faith. He's saying, Lord, I know that you can give me more faith than I have right now. It's still a cry of faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. God, our Father, is the object. He's the one to whom we entrust ourselves. So we see a couple of things here, just lastly, about the nature of this faith, which I've already spoken about a lot, but it is fixed on God. God made a promise. That is what gave Abraham faith. Someone who was immovable, powerful, able to create, able to resurrect, all-powerful, had made a promise to Abraham, and that's what he could have faith in. So it's fixed on God. It's fixed on his word, and it holds on to his power, not our power, not our power, please. His power, his power. And as we're going to see in the weeks to come, for sanctification, for our transformation into someone who's more and more like Jesus, it's the same faith, it's the same power. It's not our power. We have to exercise that faith daily, hourly. Say, yes, Lord, I'm really impatient right now, but I know you're transforming me. I know, I know that you are committed to my transformation. And there are such spectacular promises in the word about that for us, which we're going to unpack in the, way, in the weeks to come. And the last thing that I'll say about this is that it says Abraham considered his own body. He did consider it. So faith yeah, depending on where you've learned it from, sometimes it's presented as a, almost a denial of reality. You, you have no money in the bank and you say, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich. Just because I say I'm rich, I'm rich. Or, or whatever. It's sometimes presented as a denial of reality. Which also asks a lot of the person, because now you have to really psychologically almost torture yourself to deny reality and say, God is going to come through to me. No, that is not the burden of faith. Abraham considered his own body. He knew his body was 100 years old. He knew Sarah's womb was barren. But he could consider it, put the promise of God next to it, and then it, the scripture can say that he didn't weaken in faith. He could put both of those together. And see that, okay, well, this one overcomes that one. Let's go. Let's keep going. Faith overcomes doubts. Doubts are a natural part of life. Doubts can be a purifying experience. I guess in one sense, every time you grow in faith, it's because you've overcome a doubt. But God calls us to that. Doubt can be purifying, and sometimes we wrestle with things. But... There is sometimes in some Christian circles almost a celebration of doubt as a noble thing, maybe confusing humility. Humility says, I don't know everything. That's fine. Humility, good. Doubt says, I don't know everything. We can't know stuff. We, we're skeptical. We become double-minded. God calls us out of that. We, we overcome that into a new step of faith, overcome that into a new step of faith. So God always calls us upward into faith.
The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Righteousness will be reckoned to us, counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, hallelujah, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our faith. No, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We put our faith in him and he puts us in a standing of peace with God. So we've covered a lot of ground there. I think just to end up, I want to just give us some time to respond. We're not going to sing. France is just going to play some instrumentals for us. Um, but I just want to actually give you time to respond to God. Um, Yeah, so as I say, we've covered a lot of ground and God has maybe highlighted a few things. Or even if you just want to gaze on the glory of God's salvation, that's also fine. Just meditate on the marvelous fact that, the marvelous fact of salvation, how powerful it is, how big it is, how Scripture says God is able to save to the uttermost. He saves you to the uttermost. Not a little patch here or a patch there. He saves you to the uttermost. So I'm just going to allow some time for quietness and reflection. You can pray to God. You can um, meditate on Him. If you would like to pray with anyone, you're also most welcome to come to the front. Or your friend can pray for you. Um, but we are here to pray for you as well. And especially also, maybe you've never actually come to that point where you've entrusted yourself to Jesus Maybe you've felt heavy under a condemnation of failure. People pointing out just how sinful you are. You know how sinful you are. You know how holy Jesus is. And you live under a shame. That God's always going to just, just give you one. Just give you a whack for all your naughtiness. And you've tried to please Him. You've tried to live a life that pleases Him. And, and all the while, you've actually been standing on your own righteousness before God. You've tried to build yourself a place to stand on before God. It will fail time after time after time after time. God says, I've made a foundation. You come, st come stand here. So if, if you would like to pray through that with someone, like some counsel, that you're also welcome to come to the front just to take that opportunity to entrust yourself to Jesus to say okay Lord I know I'm a sinner I know you've made provision I, I trust you I let go of my confidence in the flesh I have no confidence in the flesh in my own ability I let go of it Lord and I come to you Save me. Save me, O marvelous Savior. I take hold of your forgiveness. I take hold of the sacrifice that you made to turn away God's wrath from me. I take hold of that.
just want to <clears throat> continue with that in, in Hebrews 11. We know that verse. It says, "Now by faith, of now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." <clears throat> verse two it says, "For by it people of old received their commendation, commendation." Um, like how the message puts that second part, it says the act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors, set them above a crowd. And faith is not an optional thing for us as believers. It's the only thing. We don't have an option of, okay, I'm leaning into faith a little bit. I'm not leaning into faith. And just felt um, <clears throat> like Matt said, when we prayed in intercession, this whole concept of I have, I need to put faith in my faith. I have faith in what I can do versus faith in the person of Jesus. Our focus is not in what I can do. I need to be strong, be faithful, and muster up my faith. It's focusing on Jesus. And I just feel almost in our society, there's so much focus on self and what we need to do. But I, I feel we need to actually renounce that belief of focus on self, on, of self, of prioritizing self, of thinking without noticing it. In the back of our minds, we're thinking, how am I going to do faith? It's not about how our focus is not on us. It's on Jesus. And I just want to, with that, just give an opportunity for us, us to renounce that that lie of putting our faith in ourselves, and then saying, I put my, almost what we end up doing is putting our faith and our faith in Jesus rather than just our faith in Jesus. Um, so I'm just going to pray for us and just that you, I just want you to, to pray with me and just as we just re renounce that. And Father, we come and thank you, Jesus, that you made the way that you are the only way, that there's no other way, Father. We thank you that when we follow you, we do it by faith in you, Jesus. And we just come and renounce the lie that it's about the strength we have, our faith being strong. <laughs> and we say it's about you, Jesus. You are the author and finisher of our faith. You are the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. We thank you for that, Jesus. And just if that's you, just as a way of responding to God, just raise your hand. Um, just renouncing that lie of saying, I don't want to be that person that puts my faith in myself or in my own faith, but in Jesus. And Father, we just repent where we've focused on self-improvement, self, just self, Father, where we idolize self and what we bring to the table father we repent of that jesus and we say that it's about you we turn to you and we put our faith in you jesus we thank you for that jesus thank you for your salvation thank you that you made the way jesus we praise you just for that father thank you just for freedom's sake you've set us free it is not salvation by our works or how good we're in our faith it's about you jesus believe in that jesus we thank you just for that thank you just for